Hi, this is Malia Cromer, director of the Goucher College Poll, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, a source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy viewed favorably by an overwhelming majority of Marylanders. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here joined today, or this evening I should say, by Michael Sanderson and Sarah Sample. And today we are going to talk about a number of issues from around town. We're going to get into the budget primarily, but we will also dig deep on a few budget items and talk generally about some policy issues out there. First of all, Sarah, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. I know we've all had busy days and, and you were testifying all day and uh, and presenting to our legislative committee, but I know you just got back and, and you've been in committees all day. So thank you for taking the time this evening. Of course. I'm happy to be here. Michael, I assume you're you're treading water, but you're doing well. <laughs> all good <laughs> situation normal. We're, we're not into full like late night mode. So, you know, I, I, I don't have any uh, any rocks out right at the moment, but uh, that's OK. We'll, we'll do after dark later in session when it's a little more appropriate. Where this is just evening. Right. Yeah, we're just easing <laughs> into it here. So it's been a little more than a week uh, since the governor's budget and fiscal plan were introduced. So, as I said, we'll talk through that plan and we'll do so with an eye on things that affect county governments. That's what we do and the services that we deliver locally. Also, we're recording on Wednesday, so we did just hear the state of the state today, um, and that has helped us put some more details together on the priorities of the governor and the new administration, and a good chunk of that is connected to the budget, so it's it's timely for this recording. Yeah, definitely, and we had seen hints before, but I think we did get some more details today, so we certainly feel like we have a few things that are worth walking through, so let's get into it. I'll start here, and, and you all just chime in. Um, I've gone through the budget, and I think that some top-level uh, items for us to talk about, I mean, number one, this is a pretty good budget, uh, from all accounts at least. Um, you know, the Governor Moore has has put aside $500 million for the Kerwin blueprint to make that fund solvent for longer. We've all heard about the issues in the out years, so they have $500 million set aside for that. They also have $500 million set aside for future transportation priorities, which they haven't really laid out yet, but certainly thinking ahead there. We have some enhancements to the earned income tax credit. Uh, the governor does plan to exempt military retirement income from taxation. We're not sure yet if that's going to be a subtraction modification or a tax credit. As a reminder, subtraction modifications are technical. It's a technical term, but it's a tax cut. But a subtraction modification affects county revenue, whereas a state tax credit does not. So we prefer the subtraction modification. And then you also have uh, the expansion of the child tax credit. Um, and, and so those are really high level things that are great for the state, I think. And again, looking ahead, trying to make sure that we're taking care of our folks. Um, one thing I do want to mention, and, and Michael, I'll let you weigh in on this, too, because for so long you were the education guy at MAKO. Um, we have seen a massive bump in uh, free and reduced price meal numbers. And um, this this goes along with student enrollment still not being right coming out of the pandemic. But the, the big bump and people refer to it as farm um, the, the, these numbers are massive, Michael, and it sounds like this is the first year they've tried to marry some data together. So why don't you talk a little bit about that and, and how you read that? Because it's a big deal and we're talking about a lot of money. Uh, sure. So so first of all, um, the the kid count involved here, this is this is kind of a, a, a tricky thing that arises as a function of 
counting students who are eligible for a free and reduced price meal. And in doing so, uh, the, the legislation, the blueprint bill, um, and this was one of the outcomes of the Kerwin Commission said, we might not be counting all the kids who are eligible because this is an application program. So because you have to apply and say, I want my free lunch, and you have to fill out the paperwork and that sort of stuff, not everybody has done that. We, we've always known there's been some sort of a gap. So the Kerwin bill said the school systems should interface with the state health department and let's find families who have filed for Medicaid. So that's that's health insurance for low income families. And if those families have kids in the schools, we ought to cross reference those databases and we'll probably identify kids who should be getting a free lunch who may not be. And I don't think anybody anticipated that. Um, I don't think anybody anticipated that the numbers would be as stark as they are, but it looks like making that cross-reference has turned into, we found 110,000 students in the public schools who probably should have been getting a free lunch for some time, but haven't been. So this is, this is good news that we're reaching the kids who need the help, but it is a big, it has a big ripple effect with the data change. Um, just because those numbers drive an awful lot in school funding. Let me, let me speak about that for, for a second and, and not get super, super deep, but the way the, the blueprint program works, the, what we're, the model we're moving into with funding schools is effectively count the number of kids you have in your system and count special categories of kids that we know drive extra costs and then most of the formulas are really all built off of that. What are the services we need to deliver to all students and then to these special categories of students? And these free and reduced price meal students are one of those special categories. So an extra 110,000 of those kids means that the costs for providing appropriate school services for that universe are going to go up materially. It sounds like this is in just about every jurisdiction we had an undercount. I, I haven't seen a side-by-side, but I've, it sounds like it's floating around Annapolis, and it's dramatic in some places, but it's meaningful everywhere. Um, so this is a big change. I think what it ultimately means is the numbers for this year, the requirement to fund in this year's budget, are higher for the state, but most of those services are, are places where it's a state and county split obligation and so this is going to mean that the county obligation is going to go up in an awful lot of places. So some county governments are probably going to be surprised when they see a memo from the State Department of Education or from their local school board saying this is what your required funding is. And they might say, wait, hold on, that's bigger than we thought it was in October, November. It's because we found that there were more kids who needed the reduced price meals. That's a cost driver in these formulas. Right. No doubt. And that's a, certainly a tricky issue. And there's another tricky issue. And this one has to do with measuring taxable income for the counties. Department of Legislative Services Executive Director Vicki Gruber, she addressed our legislative committee today and, like she always does, did a great job of walking through the fiscal plan and the budget. But she did mention that there seems to be an issue with net taxable income and the way it's been calculated, and maybe they were missing some data. And, and again, Michael, you know, what, what does this mean? Because this also has a major effect on the state's uh, formulas in terms of how they distribute what they call local aid, and especially when it comes to programs like the disparity grant um, and schools. So this is another tricky one that we're going to have to keep an eye on and see how it shakes out. 
Yeah, I, I think so. The, the state does a number of things uh, at the state level are done with sort of wealth equalization in mind. And school funding is one of those things that you know we, we, we've talked on this podcast probably scores of times about the Kerwin Commission and then the legislation and the blueprint and so forth. But education funding, for the most part, is distributed in a wealth equalized way. So the more wealth a jurisdiction has to tax itself and its own residents, uh, the less the state contributes as a part of the pie. And a big part of that is how much income do your residents have that is effectively available to be taxed through the county income tax? Here in Maryland, it's property tax number one, income tax number two, and everything else pretty well behind. So we measure local wealth in terms of those two numbers. And if there's a big move in the amount of taxable income, which it sounds like there may be, it sounds like um, we may have used some preliminary numbers rather than final in some analyses and so forth. I'm trying to understand exactly where, you know, where the hiccup happened and I, I don't really know. But usually this is, this comes down to late filed returns who tend to be more complicated and frequently higher income returns. Um, if we're making adjustments there, that might have a different income impact in different places. But the bottom line will be if your effective wealth changes, that could mean a ripple effect on your share of school funding, and also other programs like, without getting super deep into it, the disparity grant program where the state helps jurisdictions that are willing to tax their residents with the income tax, but they don't get a lot of juice out of it. The state kicks in a little bit extra, but that's a function of how much poorer are you than the random county, than the statewide average. And um, if you if we have a change in net taxable income, county by county, it's possible that those numbers will wobble and that state average may move. So that might be good or bad news, depending on how things change. Right. So that's certainly one to keep an eye on as well. We should have more information um, later this week in terms of how that will shake out and how it will affect state aid to counties. So we've gone through some of the governor's priorities in the budget. We've gone through a couple, a couple tricky issues that we still don't necessarily have settled in terms of how they'll shake out. Now let's talk about funds that go to local government in the budget itself. So first of all, we always try to make this point. And when we say that there's more than $800 million in increased funding for local governments, that sounds like a lot, right? That sounds like, wow, counties, municipalities, everybody's making out really, really well. But we should be really clear about what that really means, because 733 of that 800 million is in school funding. And that goes right to the school systems, not to your counties, not to your towns. This is always something that, you know, I, I, it just bothers me that we call this local aid and it sounds like, hey, this is all going to the counties and munis, but essentially it's going straight to the schools. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, that just ultimately gets called local aid. <laughs> and it's, it, it's a weird thing. I mean, I think it's, I think to be to be fair to the, you know, the the DLS and the analysts who put all this stuff together, there's a certain magic of having you know, here's the pie pie chart of where the money's going, and if you have a pie chart with 67 slices in the pie, you can't tell a story that way, right? You need to have eight <laughs> or five or ten, right? You have to have a manageable number of categories, and so breaking out education as its own thing. And then having a relatively small slice for local transportation and libraries and health departments and the other things 
that that gets some support from the state um, would end up being cumbersome. So you lump it all together and you call it aid to local governments. I get why that's expedient and it makes for simpler and clearer illustrations. But I tell you, if I were a member of the House of Delegates and I got sent to Annapolis and I'm trying to put together information to send back to my residents, I would much rather be telling people I'm investing in education than in aid to local governments, which sounds dreadful. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so anyway, I mean, you know, this is this is an old saw of ours at NACO that we think this could be clear and it probably would serve others' interests as well. But so it goes. So we're part of aid to local governments, but we are clearly the tail and education is the dog. <laughs> Yeah, good way to put it. So we'll save uh, some more thoughts on this maybe when we convene after dark during this session. But it, but I don't want I don't want to get myself too worked up. Uh, you know, just here on February first, it's not time for that yet. So anyway, in this year's budget, as is always the case, a lot of the budget is effectively driven by formulas and mandates. Sometimes governors say they don't like this, but it is the reality. It is what it is. Most of the things that make their way to local governments, including nearly all school funding, is funded by a formula written into law. So formulas make these programs predictable. They let the locals plan for this year and beyond. So really, it just delivers predictability, and that's why we have all these formulas in the budget. Yeah, and the same goes for issues in public health, like Medicaid. You know, not a formula, but it's an entitlement program. So anyone who's eligible gets health care. Um, the governor just has to fund it in the budget, you know, what it's expected to cost. So some of that funding is state, some is federal. But again, it's driven by law, not really by someone making a decision. So it's and, and what is more interesting is, you know, what stands out here? And, and I guess from the local government perspective, there are two things, transportation and local health departments. And when we talked about schools getting the biggest share of that aid to local governments, the two big drivers in terms of aid that's actually making its way to local governments themselves our transportation and local health departments. And last year, MICO worked very closely with the Maryland Municipal League, and we got a good bill passed to bump up the funding for local transportation. And this year's proposed budget is the first step of that bill taking effect. Right. right. So so this is um, it, it's it's good news in the budget plan that's in front of us that the, the, the governor is funding the formula as it was changed by last year's bill. But it's not a surprise. Right. We, we basically were telling folks the formula is going to move up each of the next few years. This is the first of three ramp up years. So this is good news if you're in a local transportation department and you've been frustrated that you haven't been able to resurface roads and you've got, you know, safety projects racked up and that sort of stuff. Your, your share of the funding from the local or from the state gas tax and, and, you know, car purchases and so forth. Um, your share of those revenues coming back to your county is going up. Now, um, loyal listeners of the podcast know we didn't hit the home run. We didn't, you know, this isn't, uh, this isn't one of those where we get to stand at the plate and admire our home run swing. Um, we gotta, we gotta run this one out. So, so we, we got ourselves, you know, maybe a, maybe a ground rule double on this. A pretty good bill that gives us extra funding for a few years. Then we'll probably be back before the legislature saying the 23 counties in particular are still well behind what their historical funding level was. So we still have work to do, but this is trending in the right direction. And it's good to see that we're not going to have to fight about this in this year's budget. It's just been funded nice and clean. And, and very true. And the second thing here is local health departments. And Sarah, I'm going to set this up for you because this is your bag. So for local health departments, where there's a there's a general formula here as well, 
But this year's budget from the administration goes beyond that. So that's part of why we wanted Sarah to join us today. She's been working really hard with our local health departments on their funding problems. So, Sarah, talk to us about local health funding and what you're seeing there in the budget. Yeah, so I guess I would start with just a little bit of background to set it up. Not too much, but just, you know, I won't belabor the history too much. But, you know, I've said this on the podcast and also on the blog that um, funding leading into the pandemic had already been pretty aggressively eroded because of cuts that were made in 2008 because of the recession. I think the budget at that time was up around 70 million and then got cut down, back, I think, to about 40 million, I want to say. I don't have the numbers directly in front of me. But so it took a pretty severe cut and it was pretty much at that level as we were going uh, into the pandemic. So we weren't set up to deal with a big crisis like that. Certainly not. Um, and so now, even you know, with COVID, um, the landscape of public health has just drastically changed altogether. I mean, we've got the opioids um, issue that we've got now. We've got, you know, ongoing issues with COVID. We've got a mental health crisis. Um, and then you put that in conjunction with workforce shortages um, and increased demand. Um, it's really just put us in a really a tough situation, I would say. Um, but the nice thing, I mean, I guess nice thing about COVID, it was a unique opportunity to um essentially exposed some major weaknesses um, that appeared not just at the local level, but at the state and the um, national level as well um, when it comes to public health resources and readiness for something like this. Um, but also, I think some things that were exposed that, you know, just could be better about the systems that are meant to be um, provided regularly. So some of the things that came up were the ability to collect and share data was completely insufficient, um, hmm. maintaining a qualified workforce. Um, the lack of effective collaboration across governmental tiers um, and how to get the private and the public resources online together so that the collaboration is seamless. Um, and so those things got exposed pretty aggressively during uh, the pandemic. And it wasn't just COVID related. It was, you know, issues that we've seen um, across a lot of different service that are, services that are provided by um, our public health um, entities. So, you know, and the other thing I would say, too, you know, another thing that happened during COVID is there were especially because of federal funding that was coming in, um, there were areas where things like mental health services um, were really enhanced and expanded. The problem was is that those new resources didn't keep pace with the demand. I think we've seen that um, that reported a lot is that people are reporting, self-reporting, um, you know, issues with uh, mental health and behavioral health significantly, mm-hmm. uh, significantly higher levels than they were um, before the pandemic. So, um, so the increased need uh, right now is really, really staggering. Right. And so, as you mentioned, that federal funding is going to dry up. The needs remain strong. And so that sets up the argument for more discretionary funding. And it looks like we exactly. are seeing that in the governor's proposed budget. Right, Sarah? It looks like we are seeing well, that that discretionary funding. Yeah, I think we might be seeing some of that. I wouldn't say for sure that we are yet. I think it's still a little bit too, too soon to tell. Um, but even, you know, jumping back a little bit before uh, talking about the governor's budget, um, ahead of a legislative session, there was, you know, I think the DLS, um, the Department of Legislative Services did their issues preview. And then there were also a bunch of other national reports that were saying, um, because, you know, a lot of local health departments across the country, um, were experiencing similar things. And, um, all the reports were calling for more investment and specifically flexible investment to localities. I'm not making this up. This is, you know, I read this in multiple spaces. Um, and that it needed to be flexible because it has to meet the varying needs of the communities. Um, yeah, so that was, you know, a big thing there. But I'll also say, you know, in terms of the funding, 
if we can get more discretionary funding, which I'll get to um, in terms of what it looks like is actually in the budget, modernization was like the really, really big thing that kept coming out of these uh, reports and just to create better cross streams in providing services and care. Sort of what I was touching on before um, is that we need to try to combat some of that silo effect. It happens, um, especially when you have individuals who are utilizing multiple resources um, in the state and local uh, health departments, because that is that is very common. Um, so modernizing the infrastructure, and this is expensive stuff, this is technological infrastructure, um, you know, systems that would need to be in place. Uh, and that's a really, that's a big financial lift. Um, and so I think when we're looking at you know, the governor's budget, you know, I know we've got, there's a pretty big increase that goes from, I think, 70 million, I want to say that was in the 2023 budget, to now we're looking at, Michael, correct me if I'm wrong, we're looking at 116 million in the 2024 budget. Uh, right. That's, that's, that's about right. I think, you know, you, you just made the case, I think, that, I don't know, I think every agency can tell you, hey, if we just had this much more money, we have this really great thing we'd like to accomplish. I mean, it, it's the nature of, of someone who takes the, a leadership role in an agency like, like doing, you know, like the health department for a state or, you know, whatever is it with the Department of Information Technology. We'd really like to have this big system change in our computer systems or whatever. But I think in public health right now, all those things you just laid out, it's like a perfect storm. We can't hire mm-hmm. and keep people. We're about to lose the federal fund that we that basically, you know, rafted us through the last couple of years. We've exposed weaknesses in what we've been doing for years, and we really need to patch that stuff up. We've we've held this together, you know, with with you know bailing wire for too long. So the case was there to say this is a circumstance to do better than just the vanilla mm-hmm. formula and ramp it up by whatever, you know, the cost of living and population. So, yeah. you know, I mean, if, if all the governor did in this year's budget was say, let's just follow the formula and that'll run the number from around 74 million bucks to, I, I don't know, off the top of my head, something like 80 or 82. So that would be mm-hmm, your right. like tread water, keep up with the cost of living, but we're not doing anything more than we did last year. Exactly. Of, that, yeah. yeah instead, the number is 115. So, so there's clearly some, there's an initiative here. It's, we, we don't mm-hmm. yet know the details. There's not a bill to go with it that, that might be coming. Um, we heard some basics from, from Vicki Gruber from the Department of Legislative Services earlier today when she spoke with county leaders about this being, you know, a, a salary initiative or something along those lines. So we've got some hints, but clearly this is an area where the administration looked and said, we can't just do the minimum. We need to put some shoulder into this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think and when you're looking at public health, we're talking about individuals with, you know, a lot of licenses and certifications. These are very specialized positions as well. And so, you know, when you look at the private sector, as these workforce issues and the demand issues were coming up, um, the private sector is just way more agile than we are. And they've been able to adjust and really, you know, make a more, uh, intriguing setting for somebody who does have all these qualifications and we just have, do not have that same agility. So, so if, you know, a lot of this big increase is potentially salary related, I think that's good. That gets us to a situation where we're taking steps in the right direction, but is that necessarily going to be enough money to start going in the direction of the modernization needs that we have? Um, I, I would, I would question that. Yeah. So Sarah, it is interesting. I mean, we don't know if there'll be a bill, 
or if this is just, you know, a, a budget priority. But you 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 mentioned salaries and, and Michael mentioned that Vicki Gruber hinted at, at maybe this is a bump in salaries where that difference is between the 80 or 82 to 115. So, Sarah, what I find interesting is that, you know, all of these people, whether it's the safety inspectors and environmental health or the people serving in the clinics and in the back offices of our health departments in every single county, these are all, nearly all, state employees, right? So the county's ability exactly. to address yep. these shortfalls is, is really limited here. And so that would be an important step for the state to step up and say, hey, mm-hmm. you know, most of these people are all our employees and we need to bite the bullet here and make sure that we're funding them appropriately so that we can pay these people the kind of money and, and make sure that they are happy in their jobs and that they don't bolt for the private sector, right? Yeah. And then you brought up the point about environmental health professionals. But I mean, and when you look at, you know, those positions um, specifically, that's an area where we're having a hard time keeping people who um, have the qualifications. And a lot of times we are training these individuals and then they're just moving over to the private sector after about a year of working, um, you know, with local governments because they're making two and three times more money ultimately. And I don't know that we're going to match those numbers necessarily, but we do have to find some way to get and keep good people in these positions. Because if you look at environmental health, I mean, we're talking about keeping the drinking water safe. We're talking about making sure the restaurant's are all compliant with health codes. We're talking about septic fields. And, I mean, these are really important things that just, if the dominoes fall, it's a bad situation. Yeah. Another one of those things that's not political at all, right? Knowing knowing that the restaurant you eat in, has, you know, that somebody came in and looked around the kitchen and said they're cleaning up, they're following the rules, like that's something we all have a stake in. That's not really a oh, red yeah. or blue kind of thing. We say that about potholes all the time, but local health is one of those things that everybody benefits from. Yeah, no question. Yeah, no doubt. So, so, so whether or not this is more staff or just realigning where they fit into the personnel system, I'm sure that our local health officers will welcome the help with open arms. They're welcome the Not fact really. that they're seeing a bump. Um, and it, it's been a long time, right, since they've seen this kind of a, a bump outside yes. of COVID. So that, that really is a good sign, I think, moving forward, Sarah. Yeah. Yes, I agree with you. It's a positive direction. <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're, they're also, I mean, this is, this is the state doing right on an issue that where we've had some friction in the past over years and years when when the state was having relatively good times and was given state employees cost of living adjustments, you know, three, four, five percent or whatever. There was always this worrisome issue where the state formula that went to local health departments would end up covering like if you were lucky, maybe a fourth of the cost of just the extra mm-hmm. salaries for all the state employees in your local health department. So so they would say something like, oh, here you go, you know, mid-sized county, Cecil County, you get an extra $200,000 in your formula this year, but the cost of just paying the raises we just approved is a million one. Or that, you know, like mm-hmm. numbers like that were really common for our health department. So in this case, if what they're saying is we need to reframe some of these salaries or reclassify positions or whatever, and the, here's the money to go along with it, um, that's like that's the funded mandate, which, you know, warms our hearts in local government. Well, and I would just ask the question, too, I mean, because we've heard, you know, in some of the uh, presentations uh, regarding the budget, the um, the term salary enhancements. Is there any way they're considering salary enhancements synonymous with COLA? I think it's too soon to say. So, yeah. so I mean, state employees, generally speaking, get what's called a step. You know, you move mm-hmm. up one step in, in the in the pay structure for a year of, of good service. 
um, in addition to grades and so forth for what the, the job classification is. And then mm-hmm. cost of living adjustment, that sort of thing is usually just, you know, collectively bargained, um, that, that sort of stuff. But you end up with a, a COLA each year. My guess here is this has to be more than that. If, if this has to be okay. more like they've decided, to, I don't know what, whether it's more people or I, what would make more sense to me is a reevaluation of a number of positions mm-hmm. and saying, we're not attracting the right person by calling this a grade 10 position. So let's move it to a grade 12 and see if we can hire somebody at 66 rather than 51. And that would, that would be the kind of thing that if you do that and, and you send the money along with it, that's where you end up with like 40 million bucks extra for public health to say, let's fill these jobs with quality people rather than have, you know, that we train them for four months and lose them. Right. And, and that, and that does add up, right? Because we know that a big emphasis for the administration is trying to recruit and retain uh, the state's workforce. We know that the state has a lot of open slots right now, not just in public health, but across the board. And so they've made a big deal about making sure that we can not only recruit, but then keep people around and that they don't run off to the private sector. So I think this sort of adds up when you talk about a lot of these folks, most of these folks are state employees. So if we're, if we're trying to fix all the, the problems and fill the holes across the state in terms of people, um, you know, coming in and wanting to work in government and work for the state and fill various roles, this does sort of add up on that front. And maybe this is part of the bigger initiative. But I certainly think, too, that this administration took a long, hard look and realized that, you know, public health is a big deal. It's not just COVID. There's so many other things, Sarah, you've already mentioned them that we take for granted every day and that they want to make a meaningful investment here and make sure that we have the right people to do all these things and keep people safe. So I think there could be multiple things going on here, but either way, again, uh, headed in the right direction for, for public health funding. Certainly. All right. So I also want to mention that, you know, generally speaking, we are not uh, talking this year about the sort of nip and tuck items that counties have had to fight off in some of the really tough budget years in the past, whether that be the, the state shifting costs or functions here or there on the counties, that sort of thing. I mean, we've seen proposals to shift assessment costs, and we've seen uh, the state asking counties to pick up the tab for some odds and ends, and, uh, you know, just really not appropriate. But when the state does face fiscal times, often it does turn to the counties, and if the state was funding some program and now they're they're short, they will just turn to the counties and say, well, we're not just going to cut the program, but you're now going to pay for it. So we're not really looking at that sort of thing this year so far. That's a really good thing that we're not having to go and and fight to protect, you know, just our baseline funding or fight against shifts, Michael and, right. and Sarah, for, for services or other functions that normally the state handles. Right. And 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 that that's not that's not us forecasting that that means there's, you know, mirror smooth sailing ahead and there's nothing to worry about. I mean, every year's budget deliberations take their own shape and will have their own contours and there will be some issue here or there, whether it's $400,000 or $40 million, there'll be something out there that that'll turn into a debate and and it may or may not affect county governments and, and local services and so forth. But um, it, it's kind of nice to be in this environment where we don't start there. We're not reading through a budget reconciliation bill that accompanies the budget that has three or six or nine different things in there where we say, oh, wow, that's going to be a real problem for, you know, for our local departments of aging or, oh, this is going to be really difficult. Um, this is going to take some money away from program open space that we use for parks and recreation and sensitive lands and so forth. Like, 
we're not having that kind of circle the wagons mentality, at, at least not yet. So I'm happy to not be starting there. And it doesn't it just doesn't feel like it's that kind of year. You started with all these initiatives from the incoming administration about let's use our one time surplus to prepay some commitments we've already made and set some money aside for transportation initiatives and so forth. I mean, that's the flavor. How do we spend some one-time money as opposed to how on earth can we make this year's budget possibly work? And three, four years ago, it was always the latter. That's right. And that's a good point, Michael, that we we should always bring up when talking about the budget is that a lot of the money, a lot of the the surplus that people are talking about and seeing, a lot of that is just one-time money. So, um, you know, you, you can't, put this money toward things that cost money in the long term. I think that over the past few years, the state has been smart investing in one-time infrastructure costs and capital projects. So I think we're still in the same boat there. But generally, I mean, if you went back in the archives and you listened to the equivalent podcast episode uh, from 2019 or 2020, it would have sounded a lot different as we were facing big structural deficits and the word of the day was cost cutting. So we were very concerned about defending against those shifts and cuts. But you know, I will say we are not fully out of the woods. Right. I mean, we did hear DLF uh, present their overview this week, and um, we saw a chart stretching out a few years, and it showed a structural deficit not too far away, right? Yes, and that's, you know, the past year or two years, we haven't seen that. Things have looked really good even in the out years. But now uh, the Department of Legislative Services and their uh, revenue forecasters and their budget folks, they do anticipate that by fiscal year 27, which is right at the end of the four-year term, the baseline projections show a structural deficit that grows to over a billion dollars the following year. So just just throwing it out there, that that is something we haven't seen for you know the past few years. Things have been great. Things are still very good. But that caveat being that by 27, uh, we are looking at a structural deficit in the following year of over a billion dollars. So let's see. Uh, FY27 means you're dealing mm-hmm. with it in like F, in the calendar year 25 or maybe 26. Perfect timing for the next state level election, right? So that's uh, so so it goes. I, I mean, I, I guess I, I would say the the multi year forecast. I mean, it's a, it's a smart thing to do to say here's where we are today, and if you just sort of put things on autopilot and you project out for next year and the year after and the year after, um, I, I think it's a little bit like like when you, you you watch on TV and they give you like the ten day weather forecast and it shows well oh that that day it's going to rain then it'll be clear then it'll be rainy again and so forth. Oh okay, like don't get too invested in days. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten of that multi-day weather forecast. The, the farther you get out, the more grains of salt that need to accompany the, those forecasts. But anyway, yeah, Maryland. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Maryland is is I think on balance smart to think about things like that concept of a structural deficit. It's it's not in our law. It's not a it's not a um, constitutional requirement that we have a structural balance. But the idea of Looking at ongoing revenues, like not setting aside the one-time stuff, we found something under the couch cushion or whatever. You look at ongoing revenues and you look at your ongoing spending commitments and you compare those in the years out as a way of just keeping an eye on, like, which way is the wheel going to turn if we let it go for a little bit? 
Um, I think that's the kind of thinking that keeps Maryland highly regarded by the bond rating agencies. They look at Maryland as very fiscally responsible, a good credit risk. We're always AAA by all the rating agencies. We pay low interest on our bonds and we get, you know, sort of a seal of approval from third party analysts because we, we think we are, our, our fiscal stewards take that kind of approach. So it's a sensible thing to be doing, but it's not like we're watching the day in fiscal 27 when we run out of cash. This isn't, you know, like the, the debt limit that the feds get to watch where they know to the day when we go broke. Right, right, right. And, you know, so we tend to keep a close eye on that. And again, the, the structural deficit. And I mentioned earlier that the governor has proposed 500 million or set 500 million aside for the, the Kerwin blueprint to keep it solvent for longer. And that's uh, a caveat here is that, you know, and what we're talking about and why the state is showing a deficit in the out years is that after a couple of years and when the blueprints, uh, the blueprints fund, so the current balance has been drawn down and all those costs are put back onto the general fund. That's when we start getting tight again. So this really has all to do with the blueprint and how long that fund can remain solvent. So just connecting back to the beginning, when we talked about putting that money aside, um, that is the reason is to try and keep that that fund as solvent for as long as possible. Because, again, once that money's gone, everything is put back into the general fund and, and that's when things are tight. So that's what's going on. That's a high level overview. Sarah, thank you so much for diving into the to the public health budget and, and what's there, because that is a, a crucial component of local aid, of aid to local governments, if you will. And again, it's it's trending in the right direction. And I think that's that's it's it's on point and it's needed. And this kind of investment hasn't been made in, in a very long time. So we're, we're happy that you could walk us through that. Anything else from you, Michael or Sarah, before we wrap up this evening in terms of budget or, or anything else going around town? Uh, we know that there are a record number of bills requested uh, in, in this session of the General Assembly. At least that's what we heard from Senate President Ferguson. So we've mentioned last week that, you know, the bills were trickling in, but we're starting to see these giant synopses, they call them. That's when you can see what all the all the bills that have been introduced. So that's coming. We know that that avalanche is coming. Anything else? I mean, that, that seems to be a lot of the talk around town. People that I speak with, that every, that's on everyone's mind. It's like, oh, my gosh, like there are going to be a lot of bills and get, get ready, buckle up. Yeah, my thought is it's going to be a ton at one time where right now we'd be able to be working through them gradually. It's going to be like everything all at once. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I think that's, I, I that's for the course, but this could be even you know worse, it sounds like, just with the number of requests they have. Michael, anything from you before we wrap up? Anything else on your mind this evening? We're not quite after dark level, so keep it, uh, you know, a PG, but anything else that you're thinking about right now <laughs> on Wednesday, February 1st? I'm I'm mentally trying to imagine what it will be like psychologically to see House Bill 2000 because <laughs> you know you know we we've we've had years where they get up into the 1500s or even the 1600s and so forth. It, it feels like if it's not this year, I bet you it's this term when there's going to be they're going to print a House Bill 2000. And that will be a like like lose your marbles moment for dinosaurs like me. So um, I'm looking forward to that. Yes. Well, shout out to DLS, the Department of Legislative Services. We've talked a lot about the work that they do, but we should mention again that their building was torn down. So where these people work is no longer there. So they are literally, uh, you know, in closets and in hallways in the House and Senate buildings. 
Um, they're, they're anywhere that they can put up a partition. You, you hear people behind them working. So these are the people that write the bills, write the amendments. They do all the fiscal notes. They, they do all the work that makes the General Assembly function. And so they're working under very, very challenging circumstances right now. And I'm sure for them, hearing that they have a record number of requests and therefore they're going to have to write all these amendments and they're going to have to write all these fiscal notes and just all the work that goes on behind the scenes to make this work. They deserve a big shout out because without them, uh, you know, it just wouldn't function. And so the, the stuff that they're doing and the circumstances that they're in, big shout out to them. And again, thank you to their executive director, Vicki Gruber, for joining county leaders this morning, as she always does to walk through the budget. So that was very enlightening. And, and we certainly appreciate that. All right, we will go ahead and leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, you should be reading our Conduit Street blog. But for Sarah Sample and Michael Sanderson and for our wonderful producer, Victoria Moss, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.